Chapter number 36 of the Border Bandits. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shashank Jakmula. The Border Bandits by J.W. Beale. The Union Pacific Express Robbery. The following account of the Union Pacific train robbery is not published in chronological order with other robberies because it is not certainly known that the James Boys had any connection with it, and in this history of these noted desperadoes we have endeavoured to give only such facts as are sustained by indisputable evidence. It is generally believed, however, that the two noted brothers led the party, and, with their usual shrewdness, succeeded in escaping southward with a large amount of booty. The following letter, written by Jesse James to a former comrade, in March previous to the robbery, is strong presumptive evidence that he and Frank were the planners and executors of the scheme, and they had it in the contemplation even before the raid into Minnesota. Fort Worth, March 10th, 77. Dear, the boys will soon be ready. As soon as the road dries up and the streams run down, we will drive. We expect to take in a good bunch of cattle. You may look out. There will be lots of bellering after the drive. Remember its business. The range is good, I learn, between Sydney and Deadwood. You may go to the pasture somewhere in that region. You will hear of it. Tell Sam to come to Honeygrove, Texas, before the drive season comes. There is money in the stock. As ever, Jesse J. There is a mystery connected with the Union Pacific Railroad robbery which, for more than three years, has remained impenetrable and will, doubtless, continue so to the end of time. The particulars of this daring outrage, gathered principally from newspaper reports at the time, are as follows. On the tenth day of September 1877, a party of nine men, well armed and mounted, rode to a point on the Union Pacific Railroad near Ogalala, the capital of Keith County, in the extreme western part of Nebraska. They made no special effort to deceive the people of the town as the purpose of their visit was never mentioned. On the day following the encampment, one of the party, afterwards known to be Jim Berry, a former resident of the state, went into Ogalala and purchased four large red handkerchiefs and a gallon of whiskey. That night the camp presented a hilarious scene and the wild orgies were continued such an unusually long time that the citizens began to make remarks respecting the character of the nine strange men. Three days afterward the camp was abandoned, none of the citizens knowing which direction the party had taken, so that suspicion was directed against the object of the singular visitors. On the 18th following, the mysterious nine suddenly appeared at a small station called Big Springs, 15 miles west of Ogalala, where the engines of the Union Pacific Railroad almost invariably stopped for water. The express train was due from west at 8 o'clock p.m., and the party disposed themselves directly after dark in favourable positions for the work in hand. Promptly upon time the train came thundering up to the station and the engine stopped under the water tank. As the fireman was about to mount the tender for the purpose of directing the water spout, two men wearing red handkerchiefs for masks rushed up towards the engine. For some reason the engineer had a presentiment that some trouble was brewing, so seizing his pistol, he stepped to the side of the cab and peered into the darkness. It was too late. 
The fire through the open furnace door reflected his actions distinctly and in a moment the engineer realized that he was looking down into the fatal depths of four navy revolvers and he and the firemen were forced to surrender and keep quiet. At the same time the two robbers took possession of the engine. Two others with the same mask of red handkerchiefs boarded the express car while the other five commenced discharging their pistols in order to intimidate the passengers. The express messenger made an effort at resistance, but he was struck a desperate blow on the head with the pistol and then forced to deliver up the keys to the Wells, Fargo and Co. safe. The contents of the safe in gold, silver and currency amounted to $60,000, besides 300,000 ounces of silver in bars, the latter consigned to the Treasury at Washington. The robbers could not handle the heavy silver bars, so they were compelled to be satisfied with the other contents of the safe and about $2,000 which they took from the passengers. They then permitted the train to go on its way and having divided their plunder, they loaded the coin on three pack mules and made off with it. The men had been carelessly masked and a passenger had recognized one of them as a fellow named Joel Collins, who had been passing for a stockman about that section. From this, the railroad detectives obtained information on which to act, and though the pursuit which was organized failed to overtake the outlaws, there was still a hope of recovering some of the treasure. Part of the gang had gone directly south into Kansas, and word was sent along the Kansas Pacific to be on the lookout for them. On the 25th of September, Sheriff Bradsley and ten soldiers were patrolling a section of the road near Buffalo Station. They had a description of one of the parties who were expected to strike about that point, and sure enough, two men were seen coming down from the north with a pack animal. The soldiers kept out of sight in a ravine nearby, and when the men reached the station and were watering their horses, the sheriff talked with them long enough to be satisfied that they were the men he was expecting. They only stopped a few minutes, then pushed on south. The sheriff immediately bought out his squad and demanded a halt calling Collins by name. The men even then did not seem to apprehend that they were known as the trained robbers, but on being told to surrender, they drew their pistols. This brought a volley from the cavalrymen which killed them both. In the pack was found $20,000 of the gold. Collins' companion's name was Bass, and he is generally supposed to have been the Texas desperado, Sam Bass. The point at which this treasure was first recovered was only 300 miles south of where the robbery occurred. Subsequently, the detectives succeeded in tracing several others of the band and making them give up some of the money, but the greater part of it was lost. It was claimed at the time that Jesse and Frank James were along with this band and that they made enough out of the hall to reimburse themselves very well for what they lost on the Northfield trip. After the fight at Buffalo, the remaining bandits separated for the purpose of dividing the trail which was being followed closely, and the hope was indulged for some time that all the robbers would certainly be apprehended. But after the bandits divided the chase was unavailing, and the pursuing parties returned to their homes. Nearly three weeks after the robbery, Jim Berry returned to Mexico, Missouri, with a large sum of money, principally in gold. He had been a resident of the neighborhood but had left for the Black Hills, so he claimed, some months before. He had never borne a good character and was known to be an acquaintance, at least, of the James and the younger boys and other noted outlaws. 
Further than this, he was seen in Nebraska, near the place of the robbery, by parties who knew him. The exhibition of so much suddenly acquired wealth together with the circumstances of expressed robbery fresh in the memory of everyone created a suspicion on part of the sheriff of Audrian country that Berry was one of the robbers. He kept his own counsel, however, and awaited further developments. They came soon enough. Berry sold several thousand dollars in gold to the Southern Bank at Mexico, exhibited several fine gold watches which he offered to sell at surprisingly low prices, and besides this, he exchanged his ordinary habit for the finest clothes he could have, have made. Another very suspicious circumstance was in the conduct of Berry. He kept himself in secret places and appeared apprehensive of some effort to catch him. The sheriff, Mr. Glasscock, now felt certain that his suspicions were founded upon facts. In the middle of October, a young fellow by the name of Bozeman Casey came into Mexico with an order from Berry for a suit of clothes then being made by a tailor of the place. The sheriff learned of this and he at once arrested Casey, after which a posse consisting of Robert Steele, John Carter, John Coons and Sam Moray was deputized by the sheriff to assist in the capture of Berry. Casey was compelled to act as guide, and on the 14th of October, the official party set out for the haunts of Berry near Casey's house. They reached the latter's home before daylight on Sunday morning, and leaving their prisoner in the custody of Steele, the remainder of the party surrounded the house for the purpose of catching Berry when he should come to obtain the clothes he expected Casey to bring. Shortly after daylight, Sheriff Glasscock made a little tour out in the woods, and after skirting a bridle path for some distance, he saw Berry hitching his horse preparatory to walking to Casey's house. The sheriff crept cautiously towards Berry and was within forty feet of him, before the latter discovered the officer. Berry then started to run, heedless of the sheriff's cry to halt, and never paused until the second discharge of buckshot from sheriff's gun tore through his legs and felled him to the ground. Prostrate as he was, the bandit tried to draw his pistol, but the sheriff was upon him too quickly. Berry was disarmed and then carried to Casey's house, and surgical aid speedily summoned. On his person was found nearly one thousand dollars in money and a fine gold watch and chain. After the surgeon arrived, Murray, Coons, and Steele were left in charge of the wounded man and Casey, while the sheriff and John Carter rode over to Berry's house to see if new discoveries might not be made. When they entered the house, the sheriff addressed Mrs. Berry and said, Mrs. Berry, where is your husband? I am sure I have no idea, she responded. He has not been at home for several days. Then let me inform you, said the sheriff, that we have just captured him, but in doing so he was badly wounded. You had better go over and see him at Casey's house. Mrs. Berry manifested the greatest grief, and the wailings of the wife and little children quite unnerved the sheriff and his deputy for some time, but they had to do their duty, and before leaving, the house was thoroughly searched for money and valuables, but nothing was discovered. On the same afternoon, Berry was taken to Mexico in an ambulance and given quarters in the Ringo Hotel, where he was attended by the best surgeons in the town. The wound was much more severe than at first supposed. Seven buckshot had penetrated the leg, cutting the arteries and fracturing the tibia bone. His sufferings were excruciating until the Monday night when mortification began and on the following day he died. 
At all times, Berry positively refused to give the names of his associates in the express robbery, nor did he ever admit his own participation. The mystery connected with the robbery is found in the impenetrable veil which masks the identity of the robber band. The three who were killed gave no clue as to who were their comrades. In the absence of any proof, judgment being laid entirely upon circumstances and conjecture, it is popularly supposed that the four whose personnel has never been discovered were Sam Bass, Jack Davis, and the two James boys. End of chapter number 36